0: Hello, and welcome to The Machine, a computer science education podcast from the Southeast Technological University. My name is Rob O'Connor, and I'm a lecturer in the Department of Computing and Mathematics at SETU. It's been a while since we've had a new episode of The Machine, and apologies if you've actually been waiting for one. Uh, This podcast is a bit of a labor of love on my part, and I'll be honest with you, I've been so busy with regular university work that I haven't had a chance to give the podcast. Any love or attention over the past while? Now, I did mention before in a previous episode that we were working on a series dedicated to the Leaving Cert Computer Science curriculum. That is still happening. The problem is getting everyone in the room together. Basically, what I need is a time machine. So, if anyone has a spare flux capacitor handy, could you send it my way? Thank you. And never mind a flux capacitor, let's talk about something real. What about artificial intelligence? Something very, very real and very, very present. How does it affect those coming into the ICT industry? And what should they think about? What kind of skills do they need? Well, this week at SETU, starting the 6th of February, the day I'm recording this, uh, we have Computing Week. There's a whole series of talks and workshops aimed at computing students uh, where we have industry speakers in to discuss some of the hot topics affecting ICT today. Uh, It's a great opportunity for the students to hear from people in the real world and not just from us boring stuffy academics. Now the financial services company Unum are the main sponsor of this and I'd like to thank them for the support with the week. By the way I'm not trying to claim credit for organising the event, I'm just involved in the periphery. My colleague. TJ MacDonald, who's definitely appeared on at least one episode of The Machine, is the main force behind Computing Week, so kudos to TJ. Anyway, this morning I sat in the audience for the opening talk titled The World is Changing, Embrace It, it, I-T, get it, a practical discussion and example on how artificial intelligence is changing the working environment and opportunities for you. It was delivered by two Associate Vice Presidents from Unum, uh, Gary Knie, an enterprise architect, and uh, Shurya Sanyal, the manager of the digital incubator department. Their talk discussed the pace of change facing the industry, and then they got into the art of the possible, as they described it, practical AI tools, integrating them into a software development workflow, and also getting into some of the shortcomings of AI. After the talk, I kind of just nabbed them and said, hey, will you come in and record a podcast with me? And they said they would. So if you're a developer, novice or experienced, I hope you'll find this useful. As the week goes on, I'll do my best to record a few more impromptu episodes, but I'm not making any promises. Right, enough of my ramblings. Let's meet the two lads. My name is Gary Keneally. I'm an enterprise
1: architect and I work with Unum. Hi, my name is Dr. Sharia Sanyal and I am a AVP and I work as the manager of the Digital Incubator, which is the in-house AI team within Unum, Ireland.
0: Okay, so today we're going to lead on from a, a talk that you've just given to a, a packed room full of students, uh, a practical discussion uh, and examples on how AI is changing the work environment and opportunities for you. This is particularly within a, within a, an ICT context, but obviously it could be extrapolated out further. Um, you both work at Unum, could you maybe just Very, very briefly, just describe who Unum are, because I think that sets the context for the way in which you're using these tools. So whichever one of you wants to go for that.
1: So Unum is one of the world's largest disability insurance companies. A fancy way of saying that is we are Fortune 300, which means uh, by revenue, we are the largest uh, companies in the world. Uh, at least in US, mm-hmm. and we are 175 years old. So we've been there for a long time in this business. Uh, what we do is we sell insurance, but we don't sell it directly to consumers, like, for example, how you'd buy car insurance or life insurance, we sell it through employers. So okay, yeah. this is added as a benefit to the employees. And the kind of insurance we do is disability. Now, what is disability insurance? A good example is that if your partner, for example, goes on maternity leave for six months, your health insurance pays for the hospital bills, but someone needs to pay. For your, you know, for your mortgage, for your s- child's schooling, mm. uh, so disability insurance is where we pay a portion of your salary, and we have two types: short term and long term. One is for six months, and one is for beyond six months. And this is provided as a benefit by the employer, typically a large corporation in the U.S. to its employees. Mm. We also do life insurance, dental, and vision. And a, a long-term care, which is closed block, and a bunch of other things. Mm. So in some of my
0: classes, so I teach a, a year one computer science 101 course, and we'll often talk about kind of an evolution of technologies. And when I'm talking about older systems or legacy systems, <coughs> there tends to be a lot of uh, manufacturing. And then financial services, because ye, and I, I'm not put, I'm trying to put years on you, okay? Because I don't think you were around in the 1950s, but <clears throat> the the financial services sector would have been some of the first adoptees of early IT. Uh, so, and I, so I can see where where a company like Unum would have extensive uh, IT systems. And am I right in saying that a lot of the global stuff for Unum is done here in Ireland? Yeah, so so
2: we, in the Ireland office, we account for about a third of the the, the technology staff, I, I suppose, for Unum. So we've we've got a couple of different offices in the states then mm. as well, um, but yeah, a lot a lot of the IT work is is kind of being um, done here in Ireland. Um, it's interesting there. We mentioned kind of different technologies. So as Sharia mentioned, you know, Unum has been around for 175 years. Um, <coughs> Started off as a, a you know a very paper based company, and then you know obviously uh, kind of grew by buying and purchasing other companies. But l- along with that, kind of came older mainframe systems, you know stuff that would have mm. been developed in the fifties and sixties and seventies. Some of those are still in operation today. I think that's and um, I work on a, a kind of a, a committee with, where I interact with people who who work in other insurance carriers as well, and that that isn't unique. It isn't. It isn't all that uncommon. Um, for, uh, you know, large companies to still be running a lot of their, their back-end using mainframe systems. Mm. I think we've got quite a number of mainframe systems that we still use. So part of the work that we do um, is around modernization, right, so mm. coming up with new solutions and trying to move away from those older legacy platforms, which were built for a time, you know, that suited maybe a paper-based type economy and, a, you know, kind of a, a, a asynchronous piece. You know, you mm. might send in your form and a week later you, you learn about the result. As uh, now everybody wants everything a lot more real time and in their hand on a mobile phone or something like that. So, so that's the con- work we're doing.
0: So, the context of your work is geared around policies supporting i'm assuming you're supporting sales people and businesses in selling policies to these other companies and then the management of those policies and everything in between and also we don't want to have that situation where you fill out the form and you get a response in a month you want to have it a much uh, much faster time scale
2: i think yeah i think that's the general trend that we're seeing everywhere yeah uh, it, you know it's 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 Getting faster, more real time, mm. um, higher scale, right? Like, of so, course. So yes, obviously, yeah. you know, growth and 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 kind of we, we support a, around forty five million employees in the U S. At, at at the moment, um, and that would be hundreds of thousands of of we call them uh, clients, but you know, insurance or um, companies that employ those people. Um, yeah, so, so a lot of it is, has been around modernization and trying to, looking across the whole gamut of like an insurance company, if you, you, know, if you want to learn mm. about an insurance company, you go all the way from quoting into enrollment, which is like where you you purchase the insurance product, down into management, a policy issue, then into claims, right? So if you break your leg and you need to make a claim against it, you're calling into one of the call centers, or maybe you're using an app to make that claim. But it runs the whole gamut of that, mm. um, and the
0: modernization work within it kind of touches on each piece of it. So, Sharia, in your introduction to the talk inside, you talked about the pace of change and how things are moving faster than ever. And I wonder if you might just summarise that again, particularly with what you said with respect to the fact that what, what... the, your product and I'm using product in quotes okay because it's a bit more complicated than that is a kind of an intangible thing it's it's not like you're making widgets or, or not like I'm making planks of wood and therefore I will make those planks of wood and they're very much a physical thing because yours is a more of an abstract idea it is shall we say susceptible to change is that fair
1: enough? That is absolutely correct so I mean tangible products are actually entering the digital realm as well. For example, if you make a car, you are now thinking of the AI or the digital system that runs the car and then probably top it up with AI as an advanced feature. But you're right. When we are in the realm of financial products, they're intangible, they're IOU type stuff, right? So when you, like, what is insurance? You... I, I I give you a little bit of money as a pool of people, and then if something bad happens to me, you owe me. Mm. Like that's the kind of relationship, and it's all based on contracts, right? So so we are actually f- more, far more reliant on digital technology because you know if you have a car, you have a physical thing to track. That's the product, but in like how do you track? Like like once a user is onboarded, maybe you don't need the insurance for. 15 years, mm-hmm. and then one fine morning, the worst happens to you, and then that's what you need the most. Mm. And then where do you find it? Do you go to the office and knock their doors, or you open up an app? And at the time of need, that 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 half a day that you saved could, could mean all or nothing for that individual. Mm. Uh, but to re- answer back your original question about change and the pace of it... Uh, This is something that's well documented in all industry and and it's kind of a common knowledge that when computer systems came in, there was obviously a lot of back and forth about, hey, is digitalization going to happen? And I know this, my dad used to work for a retail bank uh, and I remember that when, as a kid... uh, we heard that oh, all the officers are going to lose their jobs, or either, and they and that did happen like this. I think they fifty lo- percent of the people took retirement, and the other fifty percent uh, upgraded themselves with Excel and Word and learned the new world ways of working. And I remember my dad going to classes, night classes, to learn Word, which. In hindsight, it's a bit hilarious that they put in so much effort, but it makes sense because that was change that was not intuitive for them in the professional setting that was change. Mm. And then I think the biggest change that came in was uh, there was obviously a lot of incremental change and Gary touched on this incremental versus disruptive, right? The next incremental change probably came about six, seven years ago in in AWS, like cloud, when people, when enterprise started moving stuff from on-prem to cloud. That was Mm. a complete game changer because now you could have teams all over, like, uh, remotely maintaining, upgrading systems. And then obviously another change probably came on the operation side is Scrum, I would say. Like how we... How we make change? Like, what are what is the composition of teams? How frequently we make change? And um, agile methodology. Yes, agile methodology. Thank you, Gary. And the productivity of a team and a person just went through the roof. Mm. And today we see in this field uh, where your students are at or your future students are at in in software engineering, and they land this kind of really nice jobs, cushy jobs. And it's it's not because and people sometimes say, well, because there's there aren't enough software engineers that people are really paid well off in this industry. I feel that may not be the dominant force. The dominant force maybe, maybe, is that people are super productive in this in this industry because of this change, because they embrace change. And a single team or a single and also a person within the team can deliver so much value mm. because and then the last thing that came on our doorstep. Two, three years ago is probably AI, and one year ago is generative AI. Mm. So these would be the fundamental like game-changing changes that have hit the world at large, but particularly our industry and then our organization,
0: you know. So we're recording this in February of 2024. This is important because somebody might listen to this in a year's time. And if you think about where we were in AI one year ago compared to where we are today compared to where we might be in a year two years that's important so the context is here we are at the start of 2024 um, I don't want to get in too much into individual generative AI tools because I suppose people the background of those are, the history of that is available elsewhere but I'd like to talk talk about and a part of your discussion Gary you were talking about the art of the possible yeah. and how AI tools can be integrated into, I'm going to say software development, but, you know, the creative side of ICT. And you used a, a tool, you, you gave a little quick demo of a tool called Make Reel. When you were talking, I was like, oh, I have to have give that a go. Uh, this is where you drew a, a kind of a tic-tac-toe board. And then you said, make it. And it created a HTML5 and JavaScript version of it. Is yeah. that correct?
2: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So if you can imagine it, you can you can go to the website, it's makereal.tldraw.com. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and essentially you need an API key because of course it's it's kind of a wrapper application um, and it's plugged into OpenAI behind the scenes. So OpenAI have a, a, an API called the completions API, and that's really what's powering the whole thing. The the TL draw or the make real application is just kind of a wrapper around that service.
0: Okay, so when you say a wrapper, what this yeah. is, is a kind of a, do you mean that is, as you're, the user is actually using open AIs in the background, but their the TI draw or TL draw make real is, is just a front end on that. Uh, a facade on that 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 will hopefully generate the prompts via a different way than the traditional writing. Uh, exactly. Text. You, yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm there's a bunch of different names for them, but a uh, wrapper seems to be the one that makes the most sense to me, at least when I'm talking about it. Hmm. Um, but yeah, essentially, you're interacting with an application. It could be a website, it could be an app, and there'll be there'll be hundreds of these, and there probably already are hundreds of these. Um, And you're using some portion of the experience there and you're doing certain things with it. But behind the scenes, that application, that product is utilizing, you know, AI services, potentially from a different company entirely uh, to kind of service what you're trying to do. So so the, the example I had this morning... There was like this drawing interface, it's like, you, you know, you can imagine it's like a uh, a drag and draw, you know, very simple kind of wireframing system where you can draw lines and squares and mm. put in text and stuff like that. If you've used like Miro or Lucid or something like that, you'll be familiar with them. But you can select, a, you you can draw something and then select it, and there's a button there which is called Make Real. And that's really where the interaction happens. So, so what this product is doing, what the wrapper application is doing, it's taking the, a picture of what you've drawn, sending that to the OpenAI completions API along with a prompt. And the prompt is really the key as well. Like mm. there's two portions to this, like the input, you, the, the image you drew, and then the prompt. And then really the 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 OpenAI um, gen AI model uh, is what's doing all of the work, right? So it is... Uh, you know, analyzing the image, it's analyzing the prompt, it's combining the two of them, and it's generating an output based on the, the instructions you give it in the prompt. And in this particular demo we went through, um, the result is a working wireframe, HTML, JavaScript, CSS styled um, application, basically like a little mini website or a little mini web, web page based on the image you gave it. So we, we drew a tic-tac-toe application, hit make real, and it gave us back a working tic-tac-toe game. Um, and you can get it to do pretty sophisticated stuff. I have I have some kind of more complicated ones. We didn't get into them for for the the purposes of kind of like time during the presentation. But you can make it you know play an asteroids game. Like if you remember mm, asteroids like, from yeah. the eighties, <laughs> right? You can you can draw an asteroids game. If if you can get it detailed enough and you can get the prompt right, it'll actually render a working JavaScript you know uh, a game for you where you can interact with and use cursor keys and fire at the rockets at, at the rocks falling on you. Um, so yeah, it's been pretty interesting. And, and one of the areas that is interesting to us, if you apply it back to you know the private sector and we're looking at all of these different tools that are emerging, um, is is being able to to use them to uh, get faster at uh, or more efficient at kind of generating. Um, content of a variety of types so like the the one example the other example I gave today was we took a a kind of a snapshot of an existing website, a kind of a, a, an insurance form, not particularly exciting.
0: Yeah, it looked like a kind of an old Microsoft COM object, actually. It, if, it, which it could be aging me. Yeah, <laughs> it could. It
2: could be. It could be. Yeah, and um, it was probably you know, you know these things were like you see them on all sorts of of companies that are out there that have kind of web assets that have been out there for years, and those are really expensive to maintain. They're mm. really expensive to change, right? And and you know we've all of these agile processes and everything else, but it, it still takes time to develop a new version. Version of it and test it and make sure it doesn't break anything and then there's legal requirements. You know, it's a, it's a it's a quite a bit of work. But one of the things that we've been able to get the AI systems or the Gen AI systems to really help us with is to take a picture of that particular of that particular website and then have it generate a, a, a you know a working prototype of an up you know an, a, a more um, modern version of the website, right? Um, and. During the presentation we were chatting about you know, this is really interesting that it's able to do that. But really the interesting bit is not that it can generate the content, or create a working HTML page. We kind of have tools that could kind of do that a little bit, but it's more the speed at which you can do it. Right? It'll look at something. It'll it'll generate a working prototype for it, and it'll do it in seconds. Mm. So you can quickly iterate. You can say, Oh no, hang on, I want the background to be blue. I want the buttons to be green, or whatever, and and you know make tweaks and tweaks and tweaks to it until you eventually get closer and closer to the product you're trying to build. So that's that's really where the AI, the Gen AI, is helping us.
0: Okay. Now we're going to get into the processes in a minute, but. I just I just want to I want to have an argument for a moment sure okay? I love so an argument if I was being cynical which I'm not but I just want to have an argument uh, I, I'm I'm. let's say I put myself in the head of a, a first year computer science student or somebody who's thinking about studying computer science and I've just heard what you said sure why would I need to go and learn code why would I need to learn how to code or why would I need to learn any of these uh, kind of hard difficult skills because ChatGPT or whatever you're having yourself can just do it for me
1: so this is actually a great question, and I feel both of us should take a stab at it, sure. Derek. Oh, please do go for it. <laughs> I, I feel because, and this is something that was that I wanted to talk about as well is productivity. So what these two like are these going to? And this, there are questions associated with it as well. Like why why should I even bother learning to code if if it is automatically doing what I'm learning, right? So. That's where the detail, the devil is in the detail. It's a productivity tool. So it's going to get 80% of what a human can do at maybe 5% of the time, Mm. right? But the last 20% of what Gary was alluding to in terms of testing, making sure that it fits the requirement, making making sure the testing has been completed, make, making sure that it's within the regulatory framework still has to be done by you. and the And it's not always perfect, right? So we still need human in the loop. So the skill set that we needed a year ago, we still need the same skill set mm. in terms of programming. However, what has changed is now, instead perhaps of working on two applications at a time, an engineer could work on six of them, because they can go to a starting, good starting point much sooner within the snap of a finger, Mm. right?
2: Gary, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. So, you know, if I was put myself in, in the shoes of, like, a student who's coming into this and looking at, like, the, you know, there's this new AI thing and it's, you know, it's, it's there's a lot of hype around it. Um, there's a lot of people like myself and others who are kind of looking at it and going, wow, this is really exciting what it can do. Um, but I wouldn't be overly concerned yet. Um, now, again, we're recording this in 2024, right? So maybe <laughs> maybe things are going to change in a few years, right? So I might be eating my words. But I, I think there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind is... Um, if we take, for example, um, the 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 HTML um, example that I was talking about earlier, um, mm. I think we've always had tools that were pretty good at. Um, building form as far as you didn't necessarily need to be handwriting the HTML. You didn't need to be handwriting the CSS. So you can kind of think about these tools. The first generation of them that we're seeing now is like they're, they're really are more of a tool, right? They're, mm. they're To help you get your idea, There's, you've got this idea for this website or idea for this function or whatever you need to put in, in place. And you're using the tool to kind of generate that for you more rapidly. But one of the issues we run into is... Um, uh, replayability, right? So if I if I provide the, in the current versions, if I provide an AI with um, an image of a website that I want to generate, it's going to generate different outputs each time I mm. each time I send it in, and that's a problem, right? If if I'm trying to build an entire website and that website has to be cohesive, it has to work. You know, each page has to fit with all the other pages. Uh, the fact that each one is kind of randomly being generated, or there's some randomness within the output of the of the AI the, the Gen AI's is output. Um, that's not good, right? That's that's going to lead to problems because I'm going to have, you know, the this website, for example, is going to feel different on different pages. The other thing as well, um, so that's one thing, they'll, they'll probably get better at, at, you know, in terms of like seeding it for random random generation. I'm sure there's going to be improvements there. But the other thing that's, I think is really key for people to think about is um, there's, there's two points I suppose I would make, right? Um, one is uh, that, Whenever we talk about AI, the first thing we jump to is like coding. And I always find that really interesting, right? Because coding in a way, Mm -hmm. in order to be good at coding, you need to understand a problem really deeply. And then you need to be able to express the problem, the solutions to the problem in in a manner that a computer can understand. But you, you, you can't remove the fact that you need to understand the problem. Yeah. And what we're finding in the Gen AI systems is that they're really good at predicting what the next token is. And if you look at code, like code mm. is like a, a, a minimalized, formalized language, right? There's only so much syntax, so it's it makes sense that the AIs, AI's are really good at producing it. But in terms of solving an actual problem, they may not be, they may not yet be as good as we think. That's more where you're getting into like true AI, right?
1: Um, yeah, cognitive AI. Another thing that I think would be a pity not to add is how large software companies, uh, productivity companies like Microsoft and GitHub are looking at this. So they have all launched uh, co-pilots, mm. which are basically, again, tapping into similar open AI type of backend. And within our organization, we are uh, investigating what is the dollar value of productivity increase? And and I'm very proud to say that we are one of the very few organizations within finance that are doing a really 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 thorough job at it. And my- I'll make sure I send that clip to your boss. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's always a good thing to do, I guess. Uh, uh, so the leadership in the company is really interested in understanding one thing: is that it t- let's talk about GitHub Copilot, right? It's yeah. it's a tool within. GitHub, that helps people write better codes and test uh, and, and faster. So we are doing a thorough review. Uh, we're doing uh, testing with smaller teams and understanding, hey, what's their productivity jump uh, in terms of delivery? Uh, and and uh, first of all, is this like a little bit of a jump or is this a massive jump? And then if it's a massive jump, then we are going to drive adoption of this throughout the organization. Mm. And, and it's incredible. Like in certain cases, it's and the, the some preliminary results are out, and it's incredible that in certain aspects it's really uh, sh- uh, it's good results. Uh, but then we can we're also seeing that AI is not all encompassing. You still need good programmers. Mm. You need still great great people that work in teams to deliver this, because at the end of the day, it's a productivity tool. It's not the solution itself. So.
0: If I could kind of summarise what you're saying or try to get get the gist of it. um, I'm I, the, Over 20 years ago, I was working for a software company, a programmer, and I would spend a huge amount of my time, I remember working on projects, and you'd write a lot of what would now be considered boilerplate code, getters and setters and really mm-hmm. boring, low-level functions, shall we say. But then as the tools evolved, you didn't have to do that anymore because the system would just do those for you. And then... I liked what you said, um, uh, Sharia, about the 80%. So the 80%, so it might get you 80% of the way there, but actually that's the boring bit. The really the really interesting bit is the 20% on top of that. That's where the real magic is. And I, the only thing that I'm worried about is maybe if somebody is using a generative AI to shortcut that 80%, but doesn't have the base knowledge, internalised knowledge, they won't be able to do the twenty percent on top. That's that would be my concern. Now that as as educators, that's our job to, to you know, to, to instill
2: that. I think that's exactly right. And and we were seeing examples of that where, <clears throat> you know, just to take a kind of a little bit of an obscure example, but there's there's coding puzzles that mm. you know probably you know quite popular out there on the internet and um like they've they've attempted to get the AI models to solve some of them. They've had some success with some of the more simple problems. Um, but as you get into more complicated problems, the AIs tend, even the latest models, tend to fail. Mm-hmm. They will produce code that compiles. They'll produce code that produces an output, but it's not its not the right output. It's not solving the, the right problem. And the more you try to correct it, the more confused it gets. Um, yeah. And that's because, again, it's, it's statistically, you know, analyzing the inputs. And it's, you know, if the input has gotten corrupted or it's gotten confused, it's going to get more confused as time goes on. So that's kind of interesting. I think that's really where I'm going with my point is, like, if you look at, you know, the generation of HTML and stuff like that, like the lower level, you know, building HTML form and doing it the right way, you, you know, that where it, it's not a problem. It's a it's a known solvable thing, right? We already know how to do that. The, the AI is just going to eat that up. It's going to know how to do that very quickly. But it's when you get into a problem domain where you need to understand the context, you need to understand what the, the, the end user is desiring. That's still where the human has to be in the loop to kind of use the tool in the appropriate way.
0: You're reminding me of, something that I've No, I'm not teaching a programming module mm-hmm. at the moment. And I haven't for about two years. But what I would often see, particularly with, with, with the newer programmers, is you give them a problem and the first thing they do is they open up their ID, whatever it is, okay, Visual Studio, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, and they start hacking away at the problem. And I'd always be trying to pull them down. You're focusing on the how, but you don't even know what you're trying to do. Sure. And I think when you're describing, like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve here? Now, you can make that a very low level functional thing. I want to search through a list and find, you know, the, the maximum, the minimum and the median number from a whatever. OK, yep. or, or it could be uh, something a bit more of a larger system and certainly a case of more integrated systems. But it's that what, what am I trying to do? And can you articulate that? And if you can't do that, how can you expect to solve it? I think it's a really good point because you have to think about the order, you, you know, the level of the problem
2: you're trying to solve, right? Mm-hmm. So and and so there's a couple of bits in this, right? Like one well, it's is... It's a complex thing. It's it, not, yeah, yeah. it is, yeah. And I mean, if you're trying to reverse a string, I mean, like, you, you, you know, Copilot or something is going to answer that for you immediately. If you get into more, at least within the IT sector, if you get into like system design, and you're talking about, you know, multiple systems that have to interact with each other and they need to be transaction, you know, a a transaction needs to work across all of them and you see, you know, disaster resilient and everything else. That's where um, the problem starts to go (coughs) beyond the current, uh, you know, capacity of the the AI systems. But um, the other other point I was going to make earlier, actually, on all of this is that I I think when we sit down and we look at this stuff, we're applying, or we generally think of like AI in terms of writing code and kind of solving problems for us. Mm. But I think what's really interesting, that's a difficult thing because there's a right and a wrong answer most of the time, right? Like a system either does what you want to do or doesn't, right? And there's a a, a, a million ways it can be wrong, but only a couple of ways it can be right. Um, but when it comes into other types of roles, like where humans are generating other types of content that isn't code, where it's not quite as deterministic, mm. um, where, you know, it can be a bit more fluid. I think that's where we're really seeing that the AIs are just landing and eating that kind of stuff up. Right. Um, in terms of like, for example, like marketing material and, and you know, kind of um, copyright text and stuff like mm. that. It's very it's very capable in that area of kind of um, competing with like the the currently the best humans at that at that type of role. Um, It's not quite there with coding yet, but it probably will at some point. But again, I still feel that it's going to be a tool that we would use to solve a problem because at the end of the day, that's what kind of what code is. It's just a tool that we're using to fix a problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Sharia, you talked about standing on the shoulders of giants, that section where you were getting into kind of uh, I'm going to say processes or or a flow, a workflow. And you talked about a, a traditional thing where you have a kind of a, an input and some rules and a model, and that gives you an output, right? And that can be for anything. It could be an insurance system. It can be tic-tac-toe. It can be rock, paper, scissors. It doesn't matter what it is, okay? Uh, but then you talked about an AI-based method and an AI-based methodology that was associated with that. And This is where you were talking about inputs and outputs, being fed into a model which then determines the rules based on its observations. I wonder if you might just explain what that is and how that fits in the context of the conversation
1: that we're having here. That's a great topic, I guess, because one of the questions that one should I feel ask is hey, why why are we bothering about this AI stuff? Like why mm-hmm. like yeah, is it is it just a productivity tool or it also has an impact on the end user, right? Like we did discuss uh, till now, like, hey, how is it going to help a coder deliver better value? Well, that's understood. We have heard, heard that, oh, it is really good at simple things, maybe not so good at complex things, so, but it can be like a co-pilot or a buddy to deliver your tasks, mm-hmm. right? To so
0: catch off the blank page.
1: Yep. Exactly. But then, is it just that, or is it something more as a, as a, as a consumer? Because... All of us uh, are also consumers of AI, right? So, uh, either you're buying a health insurance for yourself, or you're driving a car. Uh, all of them have AI built into it, right? And uh, <clears throat> and the high end side of the market, at least right now, and there's going to be sippage into the entire market eventually. So, what's the difference? Why should as a consumer? Why do I care that my car has AI in it? Well, well, the answer to that is. We have lived in a world, till date, where rules were always hard-coded. What does this mean? This means that, for example, while you're driving on the road, we know that, well, for safety reasons, there's speed limits, and they're hard-coded on the road. Like, everyone, doesn't matter how good you are a driver or not, you have to follow those rules. And, for example, but that, like, uh, AI is not going to solve, not going to let you faster than your 120 kilometers per hour. But what it's going to do is, for example, say you have a lane change alert in your car, right? Uh, if you are a novice driver, maybe if you are not being attentive, the car needs to kind of tell that to you. F- Faster to make mm. it safer. However, if you're an experienced driver and you're swerving a little bit, the car needs to understand that they, they don't need to throw a tantrum every time you take your hand off the wheel for for a millisecond. And earlier, this was not the case. Earlier, it was very binary. It was the same cutoff for everyone. And that introduced bias. And, and from an ethical point of view, that means that it was not personalized. And a group of people, as a, as a result of this not being individualized or personalized, the rules were always biased toward a certain group, right? Whatever is the dominant group in that use case. What AI has done has made the playing field level by making sure that it's personalized for everyone. And and, and it spans the entire gamut of our existence. Say, you go out Mm. to buy insurance, now you can, instead of paying a high price, uh, that's, that's the lowest risk for everyone else, you can now pay a lower price based on What's how healthy are you, right? You don't have to pay for everyone else's health, right? So the person who has a higher risk pays a little bit more. That way, as an individual level, AI is is democratizing services, so more people can buy it. Mm. So that's great. Also, from an user experience point of view, by personalizing it, it makes the it means that people will have a better experience of using products like driving cars um, or or running machines so whether you like it or not uh, and whether you are a programmer or not even right ai is going to you are you have to live in a world where you coexist with ai in subtle ways in more number of ways than you think you do and that's that's where we're heading i guess
0: mm. it's kind of a It's 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 an open road to consider uh, to reconsider the driving analogy. I'm I'm just as you were describing that. I was thinking about. I've I've, my car has this like driver assist facility. It's an older car, but like I ignore it half the time because it says take control of the vehicle, and I go. I do have control of the vehicle, but it's just I maybe haven't turned in a while, and my hand is resting lightly on the steering wheel. It's not that the car is not in my control, but maybe that's the baseline. As you said, it's just one size fits all model. Uh, it's just I'm on the motorway I'm not, I am not, haven't turned in a while because it's just straight you know yes. or whatever so I ignore a lot of those alerts whereas if there was a lane change alert for example and there's a car coming up behind me I should probably well be aware of that do, do you know what I mean so yes. I, I, I can see exactly where you're coming from with that towards the end of the conversation in the auditorium with the, the students, uh, you kind of opened up the floor for questions. I know, I mean, I have a million questions about all this and maybe we might pick up this conversation again uh, another day. But there were a couple of really good questions that the students had that I'd maybe like to kind of re- repeat here to just just to get into them a little bit more. Uh, one of them, or, uh, there was a lot of questions about, I'm going to say, ethics and privacy <laughs> and nuance uh, and stuff like that. And one of them was around uh, if I'm asking, I, th- I think it was I think it was you took this one, Gary. I'm not sure. Uh, if I'm asking, say let's say ChatGPT, which is run by OpenAI, which is a company, they have and they're their own private company. I'm looking. F- I maybe feed it in some code. Let's say, let's just say some HTML or some Python. That's not particularly personal information. But it, so if I want to get some feedback on that, that's fine. But if I want to defeat it some more personal information, like you're talking about in insurance, disability insurance, clearly there's going to be a huge amount of personal, sensitive information contained in that. Where does a company or an organisation, how does it view the use of outside systems when you're dealing with sensitive information?
2: Well, thankfully, there's actually quite strict rules around it. Um, so you know, the the either the US government or the the EU have taken like GDPR and, mm. and a couple of these others. There's a CCNP or CCNA is a is a uh, the California Privacy Act as well. Um, i could be getting the acronym wrong, but there there is rules out there, and and there HIPAA. HIPAA yes HIPAA is another one yes. Um, uh, so there's you know, a federally controlled rules around what you can and cannot do around personally identifiable information. Um, so the guidelines are, you know, it's it, it's written in law in terms of what you, you can and cannot do with the, this type of information. Um, I would say that when, like we we're talking about our example there of like a wrapper application, mm. um, you know, OpenAI and, and some of the other systems that are some of the other companies that are kind of producing AI, AI models, they're so far ahead. Uh, in, in terms of producing these services or these AI models and how competent they are, other companies have to use them. It's not like they, they were at the point where they can train them internally because of the cost. Yes. So we, you're naturally in a space where you're going to have to be integrating with these companies to <coughs> to kind of uh, benefit from the AI features. So that really does get to the heart of your question, like is, is what information should we be sharing? What information shouldn't we be sharing? Um, we always bo- uh, you know, sit on the line of like, there's no personal information is shared. Mm-hmm. Um, until at some point we get to the the, the stage where, um, there you you know some point in the future where there's like uh, a, a very clear segmentation of the data that we would be sharing. So in other words, it's it's housed in some kind of secure location that's. Uh, either multi-tenancy or, you know, it's a single tenant only we have access to. So we're relatively sure that our customer information won't get leaked around. But it's a big question, right? It's a big question. I think when you get into um, algorithms and code and, and like solutions for things, if there, if there isn't any intellectual property associated with them, then generally you're just kind of dealing with like a faster way to loop through a dictionary or a faster mm. way to, you know, I, I don't think people are as concerned about that, provided that it's used as a tool to kind of make the code better. Um, but the data, you know, the information we have, um, that's that's definitely where um, companies, all sorts of companies, are going to be much more careful with what they share. Mm.
0: And there's a, I mean, there's a lot of, there's an ongoing discussion about the data that many of these generative systems have been trained on yeah. uh, and it's a huge amount of ethical concerns. I thought that was very interesting that the students brought up the ethical concerns a lot. Uh, one one student was talking about uh, about bias and bias being introduced into the system and uh, uh, not that it mattered. Well, it does matter because in pride's context this student was a person of color and there are numerous examples of systems Having bias against people of color because the data set that has been trained are different, or, or bias against women because it's been trained on heavily male uh, mm-hmm. data sets and I'm, I'm I'm kind of intrigued by that I don't know what the answer is there's a couple of really good there's a couple of really good examples of it mm. um,
2: in in some of the early models that were coming out like if you asked uh, one of the models to write you a short story for example about a detective in Baltimore right uh, it would come back and it would tell you the story of like this grizzled detective, you know, where, you know, smoking a cigarette or whatever. But uh, the detectives in Baltimore, I it could be wrong, but it's it's 56% female or 60% female or something like that. Okay. Um, so you get all sorts of instances of that. But it's important to, to think that, just to remember that it's not the AI that's, it, the AI contains the bias, but the bias comes from the content that people generate. We mm. as a human species have been producing content. And that is overwhelmingly, you know, if you're writing a story about a detective in the past, it would have been a white detective in, you know, whatever. Um, So that those biases have been kind of captured and crystallized in the data sets that the AIs have been modeled on. So when we're interacting with them and they give us a biased answer, really, they're just kind of reflecting our own biases back at us. Right. Our own societal biases back back at us because that's
0: where it came from. So it's definitely a challenge. um. But isn't it imperative on us? As as let's say broad sense computer scientists to to recognise this and to try and root out some of this in advance. Like to so say for example you're working in insurance, yep. and what if there's a, a particular bias that's either racial or gender or whatever that's brought into maybe the recommendation systems for policies, but it's based on older biased information. Surely Unum as a company or or any insurance company is 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 there's there's an onus on that company to try and uh, act against that bias. Would that be fair enough? It, I don't know what you think. No, question. absolutely it is. I mean, it is, it is a concern. And even before we started using
2: AI services, that was one of the big questions. It's like, how do you overcome these biases? Mm. And, uh, you know, essentially you have to get clever about how you, you, um, you interact with these things, right? So if you think about it from a claims perspective, uh, 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 an approach a company might take is that they might auto approve a claim using an AI system. So in other words, it would it would look at the information and say, yep, this is meet the basic requirements. We're going to speed up our processes by just auto approving it because the AI has looked at it and said it's OK. Mm. If it's a denial. Right. So if somebody's making a claim and, and the AI has said, oh, no, hang on, no, this is this is, shouldn't go ahead. It shouldn't be paid out. That's where there should be a human in the loop to kind of sit down and say, wait, wait a minute, let's have a look at this and understand that this and make sure that there isn't bias creeping into the process whereby, you know, somebody could be adversely affected by it. Yeah. So that's one of the ways you can do it. But definitely bias is something front of mind.
1: Also, I felt the student had a great uh, point about bias itself. And it's a philosophical question. Mm. I think one is to understand that the definition of what is a bias is constantly evolving within the industry. So I think no organization can say, Oh, we are hundred percent ethical, all the biases have mm-hmm. been taken care of, bye bye. It's a continuous process, right? So you need to form committees and teams within your organization if you are building AI to continuously understand what the industry standards are and what are what are what are the experts saying about what can be a bias first. Because it's not about solving bias, it's also about understanding the biases, right? Because mm. for example, I think like like, the bias could be based on age or whatever, or or, or or gender fluidity and stuff. Some of them are comparatively newer concepts in themselves, right? Understanding how we are biasing the system is very, very important. And I think that's 80% of the work. And once you understand what they are, you could obviously correct for the bias in the data by, by by I like, cranking a wheel like prompt engineering or hard coding stuff, but but the technical problem of bias is I believe or I think is easier to solve than the core problem of bias. is like, hey, how are we biasing the system? What is a bias? Or like what are the different new types of biases that we have identified and we know of? Mm. And, and 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 the difference I feel is the last sentence I want to add with, say, health information. And see, the difference with bias and security is security is comparatively black and white, right? You can say, okay, HIPAA tells us don't give PHI, public health information, or personal information out. Okay, I will adhere to the standards to the end of time, and that's okay. With bias, it's more difficult because A, the standards are loser, and B, there's the morality at play, like you should try your best And and because it's more gray, that means companies, large enterprises should put even more effort into identifying and solving for that.
0: Mm. It's a fascinating discussion and I think we could go on for another six hours talking about this but we do have to draw a line under it because you've been very generous with your time with me and I know you do have to go um, to Gary Keneally and uh, Sharia Sanyal uh, from Unum thank you so much for your time thanks for talking to us on the machine today uh, I think this conversation will be continued and uh, hopefully there'll be plenty more conversations interesting conversations sparked by Computing Week at SETU this week also so folks thank you so much Great awesome. thank, thank you Thank you